The Sport Industry Access Podcast, Episode 65. How can psychological strength improve performance in elite sports and in general life? Welcome to another episode of the Sport Industry Access Podcast. I'm your host, Ed Bowers. As always, my goal each week is to provide you a special guest who is a sports expert in a specific field in the sports industry, especially if you have an interest in pursuing a career in sports psychology. I hope today's episode can be useful to you with regards to your interests and needs. Now, getting back to today's show, this week's special guest is Damien Hughes. Damien is an author and international keynote speaker where he specialises in psychology and how it can have an impact with regards to creating a high performance culture. Damien has worked with professional sports teams such as Warrington Wolves and the Great Britain Rugby League team to support players and coaches to perform at the highest level from a high performance perspective. I can happily say that I'm very interested about Damien's line of work and it's great to have him as a special guest on the show. That's why in today's episode, Damien will share his sports career journey and explain to you how psychological strength can have an impact in elite sport, but also your performance in your general life. Damien, it's a privilege to have you on the show. Please can you share your sports career journey to listeners? When did it all start? Well, I mean, first of all, thanks for having me along, Ed. I've been really looking forward to coming on this and speaking on the podcast because I know it makes a huge difference to to people, the work that you do. Um, my career started um, probably from childhood. I was really lucky that I grew up with, um, my dad was a boxing coach, and he, a professional boxing coach, so he worked at an elite level. He had his own boxing gym um, from way before I was born, so... I literally grew up in a boxing gym uh, surrounded by professional athletes, uh, guys that were dedicated and making the sacrifices to get to the very top. And uh, the whole, I mean, just the exposure to what went on, the the dedication that happened behind the scenes for that performance to manifest itself in the ring was just, it was golden in terms of an insight. And uh, I became really fascinated. I boxed as an amateur, played football to a decent level. My dad was always adamant that we had to uh, combine that with education as well. So he was really disciplined in terms of you couldn't go and participate in sport unless you were trying your best at school and things like that. And it was about 14 or 15 when I realised that what really fascinated me was uh, uh, coaching. So I went and did all my coaching badges at a very young age, both in, I, I did a little bit in amateur boxing, but I did my, um, at the time it was un, uh, under the FA, so I started off doing preliminary badges, then I did my uh, UEFA B licence, went as far as I could in that, and then started coaching, sort of, I, I worked for um, Bobby Charlton Soccer Schools originally, as a coach for them, and then uh, went on to Manchester United, working uh, for them. 
And at the same time, while I was doing it, one of the observations that occurred to me was that um, as well as doing the, um, the actual technical coaching, what I felt made the difference between good and great coaches was their understanding of human psychology. You know, um, as I say, growing up in a boxing environment, I'd been exposed to a whole heap of other elite boxing coaches that my dad was friends with. And one of them was um, a man called Angelo Dundee that was Muhammad Ali and Sugar Ray Leonard's coach. So I'd, I'd known him from, from childhood. And I remember a phrase that he used really stuck in my mind. He said, I don't coach boxers. I coach men who just happen to box. And that was almost what I saw as the difference between a good and a great coach. It was about understanding the human side. And it's just humans that happen to do a sport. So I went to, um, I went to night school and started pursuing um, psychology at, uh, at Manchester Met University. So I did that um, for a number of years while I was still coaching. And then I decided that I wanted to have a bit of a, um, a break from coaching. And I'll tell you part of the reason was, was that I was worried I hadn't got much in the way of any experience outside of sport. And it was a concern for me that what, what worried me was that I... I was almost worried about getting typecast, if you like. So I thought, if I ever lose the passion for coaching, I think you're finished as a coach. If you lose that 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 sheer love of it, you're finished. And, and I didn't want to be a coach that was almost doing it and going through the motions because I didn't know anything else to do. And I was in my mid-20s at the time and thought I was young enough that I could go and look at other options. So we ended up uh, going into industry for... Uh, for a number of years and I wasn't qualified to do anything technically and I remember my girlfriend at the time she's now my wife uh, she said to me she said she said the only option that I think I've, I could get into a business was to look at sort of the, the the development side of it so it was very much going into human resources at the time and I remember telling my mum when I was leaving coaching to go and do this she said to me she said well what are you going to do when you get found out and I think that was only a question that your mum can ever ask you. But uh, I said to her, I said, I don't know, I'll, 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 you know, I'll, I'll do my best. And um, I went into human resources, and every time I kept thinking they were going to find me out, the ironic thing was they kept promoting me. <laughs> um, so I was working really hard at that. I took that work ethic. So what really fascinated me was organisational psychology and change because I saw that that was a big part of what, of what we're doing. And again, it was almost like it didn't matter about the industry. It was about people and how do you get people to do their jobs better. So I ended up for seven years. I, the final job I had was I became an HR director out in South Africa. And that was almost like, have you ever heard the phrase where you get promoted to your level of incompetent? That very much happened to me. I got promoted to a level where I found myself sat in meetings enjoying sort of endless debates and I just had no interest in it and it was that same fear I'd had about the coaching that when you lose your passion and your interest you go through the motions you're dead in the water so I was lucky that I'd, I'd already wrote my first book at this time uh, it was a book called Liquid Thinking where I'd basically set out to combine the stuff I'd learned from sport from psychology and from business to talk about how, how do elite performers, what's the psychology of elite performers effectively? And the idea of liquid thinking was that I'd seen that a lot of people get stuck in their way of thinking. And the liquidity seemed to be people that had that flexibility to think about things differently. 
So I went out and I didn't know how to write a book, but I effectively took about 18 months and I went on a whole series of fascinating adventures. So I went and spent time with Richard Branson. Uh, I went out to Atlanta to go and interview Muhammad Ali with um, Angelo had set that up. Uh, people like Alex Ferguson were very generous with the time. Um, a guy called Wayne Bennett, a rugby league coach uh, out in Australia. These were all people that were really generous with the time talking about how they'd done what they did. And um, I'd had a bit of interest because the book had done okay. So I'd, I'd had interest from other businesses. So I decided that I was going to sort of go and pursue this area about sort of how do you create high-performing cultures and to do that, how do you help leaders and teams do it? So that brought me back into the world of sport in many ways because I, I, I quit my job and set it up as a consultancy. Now, I, during the time we were in it, I'd still maintain links within sport and with some athletes where I'd had relationships from before I'd gone into industry. So um, I ended up um, uh, taking a job working with a friend of mine, a head coach who was at Leeds Rhinos at the time, uh, Tony Smith, who's a phenomenal coach. I did some work with him when he was at Leeds to help him there, but then he got the England Rugby League job, so he appointed me to the staff to work with him. So I did that for a couple of years while I was still working in the corporate, doing sort of corporate work and helping businesses take some of these principles on. And then we went into Warrington with Tony. So I'm, I'm just giving you the sports side of it. But um, we went into Warrington with Tony and we went into a club that was fascinating from a cultural point of view because they hadn't won anything for something like 35 years when Tony went in there. And within the next five years, we retained 90% of the same players that he'd inherited. But we ended up winning the cup three times. We got we won the league once when we got to two big final, two of the grand finals, while keeping about 90% of the same staff. And a lot of it was we invested hugely in the culture and the people that we were doing it and, the, and, and, and their development. So while I was doing that, I was still writing books at the same time. And doing work with, in, with athletes and coaches almost on a consultancy basis. Because my view of it was that if you can go in, the real credibility at a club is, is via the coaches. And I'd seen that when I was coaching myself. So my role is almost to help and facilitate the coaches to be able to go and deliver those messages and to be able to um, sustain the improvements that they really need. So I now work right across a whole range of clubs. I've worked in the Premier League with um, with a couple of clubs there on the with the first team coaching staff. I'm currently working on the Scottish Rugby Union coaching staff with uh, Gre uh, Gregor Townsend and his team, looking at how do we take some of these principles. Um, I've worked on the coaching staff for England netball. There's a whole raft of different clubs and teams. So I won't bore you with naming them all. But it's very much around that idea of how do you create high-performing cultures. That's really my my fascination. And then I've been lucky. I've done the books at the same time that I've tried to combine a lot of these learnings and a lot of the, the access and the interviews that I've had with these guys to try and help other people take the principles and apply them themselves as well. Damien, I find this really, really fascinating. And before we talk about your book, how has psychology supported you looking back now by studying that topic? It has. There's an old saying that I remember hearing Roy Keane say this, where one of his sayings was, uh, common sense isn't always common practice, because if it was, everybody would be doing it. And what I find is that 
a lot of the psychology that I learn and that I try and use, you could also badge it as common sense. You have to find that with some of the coaches. You go, well, that's obvious. That's common sense. And the point is, it's not always common practice. It can sometimes be a little bit counterintuitive. I think the big thing that I've learned, though, is to have the knowledge is fine. It's the way of being able to express it and implement it. So it's not about necessarily. So the theory gives you that sort of base and it, and it becomes quite robust and it's, and it's invaluable. But people don't need the theory. They want to know the practice. And it's about being able to distill the important elements out of it. So the psychology has been, I mean, nothing else would have been possible without it. But I think what I learned, one of the big things I've learned, and I've learned this from coaches, I've learned this outside of education as much as anything, is just the ability to be able to explain it and express it in really clear, practical terms. That's an art in itself. And it's one that, I'm trying my best to to master. I'm not sure I have, but I can see that that stuff. I remember somebody saying to me, "You know, you can do, you can do 20 years at university, and nobody ever teaches you. There's never a communication module to do with it, to be able to take that learning and express it." And I remember thinking that that that's almost you just need to get out in the real world and practice it to be able to learn some of those lessons. Out of interest, what core skills have helped you with regards to being a performance coach? I think humility is a huge part of it. I mean, this is something, and again, I've only learned this through observing others, but the best coaches, the best athletes are the ones that have a humility. You know, uh, they don't think they know it all. They're prepared to at least listen and hear you out. And when I say that, it's not that they're gullible. I often find that they have really quite highly attuned bullshit detectors. So they will hear you out and then very quickly distill whether it's useful or not but they've at least got the grace to to hear you out, first of all. And I think humility plays a huge part in it, Ed. Just being willing to just open your mind to different practices, different ideas. Just really quickly, though, how have you seen sport develop over the years from a sports science point of view? I think there's a new wave of thinking coming in where I think people are, are certainly a lot more open. I did a session the other night. I was doing some a session with the England Rugby League team. Uh, we were doing it around... Um, the preparation for this autumn's World Cup. And I used a really simple exercise that I'll often use it with other athletes because they were quite a quiet group and because they were getting together for the first time. And what I did with them was I said to them, I said, I want you to divide up your your best performance. I said, think of your best performance this season. And I want you to divide it into two component parts, the hard technical skills. So that's things like your your fitness, your core strength, your ability to pass a ball. And then I want you to divide it up into the softer skills. And the softer skills are your communication, your ability to work together as a team, your resilience, your your confidence levels. And I said, I want you to tell me how much of it, so proportion, how much of your best performance to each of them. So give me how much of it was down to the hard skills, how much it was down to the soft skills. And then I said, now, sit down if you think your best performance, you can attribute 10% of it to soft skills, 20, 30, 40. Now, the reality was, it was only when we got to 60% did they start to move and sit down. The vast majority of them sat down at 70%. Some of them sat down at 80. Now, the question I asked them was, where do you proportion your time in training? And the answer was that even though they were apportioning, say, 40% 
of their best performance down to the hard skills. They spend pretty much 90% of training working on those hard skills. And my point was that the, the, the benefits you will get there are valuable, but they're also incremental. Whereas if you're telling me that your best performance can be about developing your softer skills like communication and things like that, why wouldn't you just allocate a little bit more time to that area? That makes sense because your, your gains can be so much greater. And what I'm seeing in sport is there does seem to be a move to recognising that, to recognising that there needs that there's a balance between just the work you do on the on the training paddock and equally the work you do off it around those what will badger softer skills, but I think they're anything but soft. What you're talking about really relates to today's main topic. How can psychological strength have an impact to an athlete's performance and even life in general? Well, I think sport, there's a lot of parallels with life, but I think the reality is sport is effectively about managing the ups and the downs because there's going to be lots of them. So, you, you, you know, there's no linear straight line to, to being successful. There's going to be plenty of setbacks along the way. And I think, I mean, let's couch the idea of a positive mindset in a different way. This isn't just about being some sort of Panglossian view of the world where you believe that everything is amazing and, you know, that, that, that nothing can go wrong. It's not about that sort of what you might call that syrupy, false view of the world that becomes wary in any way, in its own way. But this is about an optimistic mindset is probably is probably a better way of badging it. It's the idea that be able to recognise the strengths even in a defeat. You can work out what you learnt from it and be able to harness those skills to do something better next time. It's the about learning quicker and learning faster and smarter. All of those things, if we if we put them under the idea of an optimistic mindset, they're all essential skills to manage the downs that you will experience on the way to any success. And they're, they're skills that are as applicable outside of sport as they are within it as well. Damien, I find this really interesting. Would you mind explaining to the listeners what your website is about and what is your main role? My official title is I'm a Professor of Organisational Psychology and Change at Manchester Met University. So I do work in that area for the sort of corporate world the, the world of education and the world of sport so it's very much about working with sort of leaders and their teams to create high performing cultures that mean that you can drive for performance in uh, in the most effective way possible you create cultures that are robust cultures that that can be sustained over a long period so i do that across a, um, a range of them and 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 what i'll sometimes do is i'll take on um, like longer term roles, like the example I said to you, working with uh, Gregor Townsend and the rest of the coaching staff with the, the Scottish Rugby Union. I, I only started that on this summer's tour. But I'll do that. Um, and then I also write as well. Um, my wife says that I'm a secret geek, but I don't think it's so secret. But I, I, I just love writing. I love the idea of trying to take some of these ideas and some of this access and and make it accessible for somebody that would be interested in it. I'm fortunate I've done um, 11 books so far where I've done a few sporting biographies of boxers, three boxers, Sugar Ray Robinson, Thomas Hearns and, and Marvin Hagler, and they were heroes of mine, so they were like real labours of love. But then I've done a number of other books around this, which is effectively around the psychology of change and how do you, how do you make change happen in different guises. 
So the last book I did, it came out last year called The Five Steps to a Winning Mindset. And what that was about was it was I, I spent three years going around the world, going interviewing, working with, meeting and chatting with the world's best coaches. And what I was looking for was not industry-specific information, but more what do these coaches have in common? What are the things that they all seem to do results in their success? And that's what the STEPS are. The, the STEPS is the acronym. So what I found was that they were all brilliant at, sim- at simplifying information. They were great at getting people to think for themselves. They were emotionally intelligent. They were brilliant at expressing themselves in really clear, practical terms. And they were great storytellers. So the book looked at how they do it, but equally how a reader could look at it and apply some of those lessons themselves in whatever context that they're working in. I find your books fantastic. Uh, One of my favourite books is How to Think Like Sir Alex Ferguson. Out of interest, I'm pretty shocked that you've written 11. What have you learnt throughout that journey of all that writing you've done, reflecting now? Well, first of all, thank you. Thanks for the kind feedback. Uh, I, I am incredibly grateful. There's two things I, um, that I've learned along the way that, again, if anyone would have told me this, I'm not sure I've ever set about even writing a book, but it was almost learning it by default. There's two things that often inhibit people when it comes to writing a book. The first one is your first draft will always be shit, and nobody tells you that. Because what happens is you set off with an idea for a book in your head, and if it's the right idea, it excites you and, you, and you've got a real buzz around it, and you know really, really clearly what you want to say. And then you try and get it down on the page and it's rubbish. And your instinct is to go, I can't do it. I was deluded. It was ridiculous. But what I've learned is your first draft will always be rubbish. That is never the final version. You know, I I don't think I've ever done a book where I've done. I think the least I've ever done is I've got to like 14 revisions of a book before the final version ever comes out. And even then you could still find things that, 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 that you're not happy with. So, once you get over that hurdle that the first draft will be rubbish, the second one probably will be, the third one might start to see some improvement, is you just have to accept it's about perseverance, about keeping going. And you know the optimistic mindset that we were talking about in sport a couple of minutes ago? It's about that, just realising there's a lot more downs than there is ups in terms of doing it. The second thing is you need to have people that who, who value enough to give you really honest feedback And what I mean by that is that when you write a book and just say you share it with somebody, there's a big piece of you that you're sharing with them. So, And there's a bit that it it certainly makes me feel vulnerable when you do it. And I think people sense that and they go, oh, it's really good. I really like it. Oh, it's it's excellent. And that's no good for you. And I don't mean that in a nasty way because I know people mean it with the best intentions. But you need people that would say you could do better than that or you know, I'm not sure what you meant at this bit or, you know, that that this isn't an effective way of explaining it. And whilst that can be hard to receive at first, it's invaluable. You know, I I remember the first time, the first book I ever did, uh, I was on a flight with my wife and uh, I gave it to her and uh, her, like, the thing she said to me was she said, I'll read it, she said, but I don't want you looking over my shoulder, I don't want you asking questions, just let me read it and then I'll, I'll reflect on it. And uh, when we landed, she'd finished it, and I said to her, so what did you think? And she said, I don't quite know how to say what I'm about to say to you. And I said, well, just say it. And she said, "She said, I know what you want to write, and I know what I think you're capable of, and this isn't it. And I said, I'm sorry, what do you mean? And she, and she dissected it 
in a way that at first, like, it's really hard to hear. And then we had a rule, and I have a rule with any feedback that I get off people that I trust now. I have a 24-hour rule where you don't react to it. You just reflect on it. You just allow it to absorb. And what I found is if you get the right people to do that for you, in my experience, I'd say between 75 and 80% of the feedback is really valid. It's something you can do something with or you can eventually recognize, yeah, maybe I could have done that better. So they're the two lessons that I've learned, Ed, along the way on that. So first of all, let's say your first draft will be shit, and that's fine. And the second one is have people that you really trust and value who will give you really honest feedback. Damien, that's great, and I really do appreciate those two lessons. Out of interest, what have you been up to recently? Well, I've just finished another book, so it doesn't come out until next summer, and it's a book on culture. So it's an idea of how do you create a high-performing culture, and what the idea is is um, it was to look at one sports team that you would say put culture right at the forefront. So in this case, it was Barcelona, and more personally, it was that period um, about well, it started ten years ago, uh, which is why the book comes out ten years from when Guardiola took over. So in that four-year period when he was at Barcelona, um, I interviewed all the main um, protagonists in it, from people like Ferenc Soriano through to Guardiola around this, and they put culture at the front and centre of everything that they were doing. And so what the idea looks at is how how. So what is culture and how did it help them shape them to become arguably one of the best club teams in uh, in football history? So that comes out next summer. So it looks at some of the principles. I mean, some of them we've touched on them here. So it looks at what are the behaviours that define a high-performing team. Um, and in their case, there was three. They were really, really clear that everybody I interviewed, they could tell me the behaviours of a high-performing culture in their world they had an order. Number one was humility. They said, you might be the best player in the world, but if you're not humble, you can't learn. The second one was hard work. They say, you have to invest in your talent. You don't take it for granted. And the third one was, you put the team above your individual interests. So even if you're not selected, you still train hard because the team comes first. And there was a lovely phrase that a guy called Cheeky Bagiristain, who was the director of football at the time, gave me was, he said, talent gets you into the room, but your behaviour will keep you there. And that's almost a, um, an emblem, if you like, of what the book's about. It's about, so it's, so it's not so much about how do you get the talent in the room. It's about how do you keep people in a high-performing culture and get them to perform at the best. So it looks very much around those principles. So I'm, I'm you know, I'm really proud of it. It's been a... Um, been a real pleasure to write it so i finished it um, a couple of months ago but um sort of publishers deadlines being that they wanted to tie it in with the 10th anniversary of guardiola taking over the world cup comes out next summer and uh, i think they like to have two years between books so the winning mindset one came out last year so the, this one comes out next year well, David, firstly, congratulations, and you've got me hooked, and I, I find it really interesting. Now, touching back to when you were a young kid, back in that boxing gym, to where you are now, what have you enjoyed the most from your sports career so far? Being lucky enough to work with really good people, you know, I've got a friend um, called Kevin Sinfield, who was um, who was the Leeds Rhinos captain and the England Rugby League captain um, through their sort of decade of real success. 
And um, he used a lovely phrase to me once where he said that he works on the principle that good things happen to, for good people. And what I've enjoyed is meeting an awful lot of really good people and then being privileged enough to see good things happen for them. People that just do the right thing, behave with integrity, you know, generally try to make a difference. And it's been a real privilege to sort of be an observer for that happening. You know, and, and I think that's life as much as anything, isn't it? I think it's, you know, behave with decency, behave with integrity, do what you say, keep your promises. It's often a privilege to see people that uphold those values end up enjoying the success that they deserve. And I've really enjoyed that. Damien, you've certainly inspired me and I couldn't agree more with what you've just said. And I feel like we're at a great stage of the interview where I'd like to finish with an inspirational question. What advice would you give to university sports students who want to pursue a career in high-performance sport? The best advice I would give is just go and practice. Go and practice. Don't think that if you're at university, your first destination has to be working in high-performance sport. Just go and give your time up to, like, local kids' football teams, go and give it to non-league teams, go and give it to people that don't have access to pay for the resources that high-performing teams do. And then when you get there, just do your best. Treat it as if it is the most important job you've ever had. Go and make a difference. Go and go the extra mile. Go and be a decent person. You know, because you'll make a lot of mistakes along the way, and that's fine because if people, are, if you're giving your time up, people tend to be a lot more forgiving and the lessons you'll learn will be invaluable when you do eventually go into those more higher pressured environments. You'd also be surprised as well that, you know, reputations can precede you. You go and do a good job there, even if you don't think anybody's watching. You might be surprised in terms of people hear, people will hear about your work, hear about the sort of person, the character you are. So don't feel that it's it's beneath you to go and work at, at, at levels that wouldn't necessarily appear to you that may be far below um, elite sporting environments because the experiences are invaluable. Damien, that is great. To all the listeners listening, and I really do hope you take that piece of advice on board. How's the best way where people can interact with you? A few different ways. And, and honestly, if people want to get in touch, if you've got questions or people want to just make comments or even give feedback and tell me uh, tell me where I'm wrong or where you disagree, that's fine. I have a website called liquidthinker.com and there's a contact page there where if people get in touch, it get, it'll get passed on to me. The other way is I'm on Twitter uh, on Liquid Thinker as well. Honestly, you, you know, I, I appreciate your listeners giving up the time uh, to listen and therefore if I can be of any help, I'd be more than happy to, to try and oblige if I can. That is great to all the listeners listening in. All those links will be on my website relating to this blog post. Damien, it's been an absolute privilege listening to you and chatting with you today. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on, Ed. It's been a real pleasure for me. Thank you. What a really fascinating interview by Damien. And for me, I enjoyed that so much because relating to the career journey Damien's gone through with regards to starting right at the bottom at his dad's boxing gym, then doing coaching badges, then learning psychology, then getting involved in the commercial world of human resources and then seeing there's a need where humans struggle with regards to personal change which indicates a culture around us which relates to elite performance sport but also within 
our culture at our homes where we struggle to identify change and trends within our daily lives. For me, that is what's really fascinating about this interview. And it all does come down to the psychology of mental strength or as Damien said about that optimistic mind frame where we can adjust ourselves to our environment to increase our performance. But most importantly, to any sports science students who are listening to this, I really do hope you've got a better understanding how your studies can be applied to the real world, especially in high performance sport. But if you really want to work in high performance sport and be a coach working with elite athletes, I really do hope you took on board what Damien was saying right at the end that Give your services up to non-league sports, coaches and volunteer your time because that's where you will have the time to learn about yourself and make mistakes and also prove yourself with regards to that sector of the sports industry. So the best advice I can give, I highly recommend you checking out Damien's books. They are fantastic and there will be links to where you can purchase them. But most importantly, I hope this interview gives you a better understanding where you could fit in if you want to with regards to starting a career in high performance sport. Most of all, good luck. Now, as always, at the end of each interview, I like to finish with an inspirational quote from my guest speaker. Damien said, during your career, behave with decency, behave with integrity and do what you say and keep your promises. When you uphold those values, you will enjoy the success you deserve.